Cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal and there's no one size fits all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Hi, I'm Jen Cochran. Welcome to episode eight of the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast. Today, my guest is a 35-year-old two-time breast cancer survivor, blogger, and woman in tech. She's also a single mother to a seven-year-old who's more like her every day, which her mom would say is her just desserts. I'm excited to have Gemma Emmett share her story, give a glimpse into what healthcare in the UK looks like, and explore what equality means to her for patients and caregivers. Welcome, Gemma. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's fantastic to get involved. Yes, I'm so excited for you to share your story. We were talking a little bit off air about your journey. I have met so many young people who have been diagnosed at young ages. I think most of my episodes in April are with young survivors. I'd love for you to share your story, kind of where you were when you made your discovery and and what that looked like for you. Sure. I think, first of all, the biggest message to share is that there was no family history of cancer or specifically acute major cancers in my family at all and certainly not at a young age either so it came as a big surprise to me when I was diagnosed when I was 29 and I had a very young daughter she was 18 months old and I was just about to marry her dad and I was already trying to lose weight for the wedding when I noticed I was losing more weight, I was thrilled, really happy. I was going to the gym three times a week and eating very carefully. So I didn't really notice much going on in the way of my general health or I noticed I was getting a bit tired, but I was traveling for work. So that wasn't unexpected. I work as an IT consultant. So traveling is certainly something that we are expected to do in that role when we go to visit customers. And I tend to give 100% in my work anyway, so I wasn't really particularly surprised when I noticed myself being sleepy. However, it was about, I was due to get married on the Friday. This was in 2013. And the previous Saturday, I had discovered a lump when I got out of the shower. It was in my left breast, and I wasn't sure whether I was going mad or not. So I asked my mum to check it. And she said she could feel something as well. And she said, you should go to see the doctors. Now, getting a GP appointment in the UK can be quite challenging. We can phone up the doctor's office, but sometimes it can take about 200 attempts to even get through. So I didn't really fancy that when I knew I had things to do for the wedding um, for the following Friday. So I said to my mum that I would just monitor it, see if it got any bigger. And if it did, then we would slam the brakes on and we would go and see the doctor but I wanted to just get the wedding done and out the way and I promised her that I would see the doctor when we got back from our honeymoon in Turkey. The wedding went really well on the Friday on Saturday we flew out to Turkey and then it only took a couple of days and it was a family holiday my mum and dad came out with us because they were child carers and um, my mum said how is it looking and I said it seems to be getting a bit bigger so she marched me down to the medic at the holiday resort who then sent me on to a doctor who sent me on to a hospital they did some ultrasounds and they said when you get home back to the UK go for a biopsy 
just enjoy the rest of your holiday first. I think they knew what they were looking at and they thought probably the last holiday she'll have in a while. So when I went home, I had various tests, ultrasounds, biopsies, and then I went in on Halloween to receive the results and I was told it was breast cancer and then it was stage three. It was in my lymph nodes. It was about five centimetres and we needed to have some chemotherapy. It was also, it was the weekend from hell that weekend because I was told on the Thursday but we didn't know how bad it was. They asked me to go for a CT scan on the Friday to check the body, rest of the body for obvious reasons. And then the following Monday, I went to see this. He said, you're going to go and see the doctor on Monday. When I got there on Monday, I said, are you an oncologist? He went, yeah. And for me, it was all a little bit too real. I didn't really like that very much. I'd gone from being someone who wasn't really in hospital for anything more than a minor knee complaint to somebody that was about to spend most of her time in hospital for the next year at least. That was a bit disconcerting. But when I saw the oncologist for the first time, he was really reassuring, told me I would have FEC-T chemotherapy, which would be the FEC-fluorocyl combination, a couple of drugs, followed by Taxotere, which I, I didn't know anything about Taxotere. I was like, yeah, whereas now I'm just like, oh my God, that's nasty. Yeah, I uh, had Taxotere as well. Oh God, well... I had a really bad reaction to my second FEC cycle. So the doctor decided to put me on Taxol instead. So instead of Taxotere, we would go on to Taxol and we would have it weekly. And, and then obviously after the first three FEC treatments, we went on to Herceptin as well. So that happened around Christmas time. And I remember I was in hospital actually around the time that Nelson Mandela died. I was in hospital being treated for severe nausea and dehydration just from the chemotherapy. It was yuck. I think the hardest part for all of that was just being there. There was, there was only really one evening when I lost my nerve and I said, I shouldn't be here. Why the hell am I sat here with all of this, you know, hooked up to this drip with this ridiculous port in? This isn't, this isn't me. You know, why is this even happening? And the nurse, you could just see it. She was just like, I'm so sorry. Um, and I, I was like, I know, I know uh, it's fine let's just get on with it. Let's, let's do it. Cause my mentality was, well, I can't, I can't stop this. I've got to stay here cause I've got to look after my child. I can't leave her with him <laughs> in the nicest possible way, but she needs a mum. I just did as I was told. I stayed put. I took all my meds on time. I sat there and took it really up until the point where we got to the end of the six months and I finished all the chemotherapy and still carrying on with Herceptin, but they, did some scans and they said that they couldn't see it anymore and I just said to, I gave my oncologist a high five and said well done you <laughs> it wasn't me it was you I said, but you know you, obviously something worked and he kind of smirked to himself and I and he said right so the next thing we need to do is we need to refer you over to the surgeon for me that was a major milestone I was like yes surgeon time off we go and um, and I had a lumpectomy I had some radiotherapy and I started tamoxifen after that suddenly the healing process changed because it had gone from everybody being there and to suddenly where has everybody gone everybody's disappeared yes that is interesting and that's one of the reasons for this podcast as well because surviving is just the beginning we get through all those appointments all the check-ins from family and friends and people stopping by or helping out and then you finish chemo and you're not better you're better still have this getting back to yourself phase and nothing changes the fact that you have just spent six months poisoning yourself 
So everything suddenly feel, you feel so much more breakable, like your body just doesn't work. You're never ever going to be the same again after you've had that kind of treatment. And the same for the radiotherapy as well. I got so tired every day. In the end, I couldn't drive myself. And my mum went on Facebook and said, look, here's Gemma's schedule. If you can do one day here or there, it doesn't matter, but she needs driving to the hospital. And it was a good 40 minutes drive away. Uh, which is which is a lot in the UK. We're just a tiny island. <laughs> <laughs> they all rallied together, and you know, fair enough. Some I, I discovered so much about some of my friends driving. At one point, I was, I was like, "Please don't kill us! I've gone too far now." <laughs> <laughs> um, but we got there safely. But you're right. I mean, even even after all of the radiotherapy had finished, it was time for the hormone therapy and nothing prepared me for. I mean, I was not a good teenager. Hormones were not good. I was not a good pregnant lady. Hormones were not good. And now suddenly, like I had less hormones. For me, it was just all over the place. But I think a lot of it was the psychology of it. Where did everybody go? And other people around me just kind of saying, well, it's gone now. Let's crack on. On with the rest of your life. And you're like, that's great, but I can't do five-day commutes into London anymore. I decided after, after as soon as that treatment came back, I mean, I worked all the way through chemotherapy because it was easy to do so. I couldn't work through radiotherapy. So I had about four months off, and then I was absolutely chomping at the bit to get back to work. I'm a worker bee. I like to be productive and busy. So I went back to work in September and just went on just kind of delivering projects for the next three years. Healing was difficult because there were a few um, things that sort of toppled down around me. My marriage broke down, but I was able to buy a house with critical illness money that I had. I was just grateful for the fact that I was there watching my daughter grow up. I did have some anxiety because I was constantly thinking with every single scan, this is what are they going to find? And then after about three years or so of, of like no of like no issues on scans at all, it was all getting very much like a routine. It was I even went in last year, but very blasé, going, "Oh, hello, I've come for my uh, annual mammogram. I'm sure everything's going to be fine. Um, let's crack on with it." I used to joke about it. I used to say that having a mammogram was like putting your boobs in a in in a fridge door, you know. <laughs> so I was very surprised when last year I was in a meeting and my phone went off and it was the um, hospital and they said we'd like you to uh, come in again. We want to do a three D mammogram and I said, what do you want to do that for? And they said, oh, because um, you know there's this, there's something's come up on your two D scan and we just want to make sure that if we go down deeper that it's not something that's like a blot on the image or something. And my whole world just came crashing down around me. It was everything that I knew. I, I absolutely knew, I, I knew that was going to happen. The anxiety for the four years was just, it just seemed to come true. And people said to me, oh, stop worrying. You know, you're going to be fine. It's all gone now. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And I was like, I've got this horrible feeling. It's not. And then when that happened, I was just like, well, there you go. I was very upset. And I remember my poor boss I had a big cuddle with a lady at work and she said, she just said, just go home, Jen. So I went home and she rang my boss and then my boss checked in with me later and he was just like, is everything okay? And I said, this is going to be horrible for you. Um, new experience for you as a manager, looking after someone who's sick. And he just went, don't even, he said, just, just call me whatever you need. He says, if you need me to like, you know, bat some people away for you, I'll do that. And I was like, you're amazing. Thank you. But he, he I could hear the discomfort in his voice and the sorrow in his voice. He was just like, that is crap. This time around, I didn't quite get away as light, get off as lightly as I did the first time around. I had to have a double mastectomy. But I said to them, 
well, I had to have a single mastectomy, but I said to them, if you're going to do this, you're going to upgrade the other one. Thank you very much. So he said, okay, yeah. And the insurance company said, okay, that's fine. Um, which I was shocked about, but very happy. Here in the States, that is a requirement of insurance. Is it? Yes. When I saw my surgeon for the first time, I said, I looked at my MRI. I'm not working with a whole lot to start with. We're taking them off and I'm getting an upgrade. Yeah. And she laughed and said, that is absolutely your right. Mm-hmm. And I even said to the, to the guy, he said, um, what's your cup size? And I, I might have told him that it was slightly higher than it would normally have been and he totally gave me the side eye and he's just like all right then whatever whatever you say dear and he says don't worry we'll make it that (laughs) after everything you've been through I think it's never an issue for the doctors is it I call that my silver lining yeah absolutely the interesting thing is now none of my dresses fit me anymore (laughs) it's a nice problem to have (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Gemma and I are going to talk a little bit more about what that recovery process looks like and the issues that we face as we're getting back. Because surviving really is just the beginning. We come out on the other side and, and it is a bit lonelier. We are going back to work, but we're not, our body doesn't work the same as it did. We fatigue much faster and the healing process is an interesting, interesting animal. So we'll be right back. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I am here with Gemma Emmett today talking about her journey with breast cancer. One of the things we were talking about off air during the break was some of the interesting things that have come up for both of us after treatment. We were talking about how it's hard to hold on to things and how glasses sometimes slip out of our hands because of the way the taxol or taxotere affects fingerprints and the actual grip of our hands like we just don't have that grip any longer and for me I have a a serious challenge with name recall where I used to be absolutely brilliant at recalling names and faces now I will look at someone and be like I know that I've met them and why can't I remember their name and it's just one of those crazy things that no one prepares you for that glasses are going to fall out of your hand or jars are going to be hard to open like it has nothing to do with strength and everything to do with the fact that there's just no more grip on my fingers and it's so weird (laughs) I think you've experienced some similar things to that yeah, definitely. Yeah, I do have that happen quite a lot. And most of the time, it's usually when I'm holding something, I just, it slips out of my fingers and, it, and I don't even know how or why that's happened. And that's even happened to me at work when I was having, a, having some water and uh, I ended up splashing myself in the face. And <laughs> one of my colleagues just said, you've got a drinking problem. I was like, yeah, 
<laughs> and it's it's funny as well because I just we, we talked about how you can't really it's difficult to grip something but also I just don't have the same level of feeling in the tips of my fingers as as, as I think I had before you know my mind was blown when we talked about this because just just at, towards the end of the break I dropped my cup of tea luckily nothing smashed or anything but I, that's that was the point where I was just like does this ever happen to you because I don't think I've ever heard of this being documented anywhere. I mean, they talk about per peripheral neuropathy as being a tingling in the hands and feet. But I don't think I've ever read anywhere about this side effect that seems to carry on and has continued ever since I've had chemo. And that's getting on for five years now since I had my last treatment. It was really interesting for me because as I was going through treatment, I noticed my phone, my biometrics stopped working. And yeah. I just thought, oh, my phone's old. Oh, maybe I need to, you know, refresh that. And it didn't occur to me that my fingerprints were actually changing. I had once been told never to commit a crime without wearing gloves because my fingerprints were so defined and my ridges got picked up so easily. And now I have fingerprints, but they're not nearly the same definition that they used to be. Yeah, I almost wish oh, I could go back in time and have a look at my fingerprints because I, I have to admit I didn't notice it back then. And then it's only since we've been talking today that I'm sitting here examining my fingers and <laughs> thinking they are, they are very smooth. So yeah, I'd be really interested to, to hear from others who've had this kind of treatment and if they're experiencing a similar thing. I think it's interesting as well because since biometrics have become more mainstream and have been on phones and on computers and used for connection with passports. Mm. Um, one article that came up for me when I first Googled this, because I saw it on a TV show when I was going through treatment and I was like, is that a thing? <laughs> oh, it's a thing. Huh. Who knew? Because <laughs> no one told me. I just no. thought I was getting clumsy or weak. I just didn't know. And there was a gentleman who I think he was traveling from the States, but he was from somewhere in Asia. When he reached his destination, his fingerprints didn't match what was associated with his passport because he had been on treatment. That was one of the first documented incidences of a change before biometrics were so popular. I think it was just a thing that we were unaware of. Yeah, well, we don't have them here in the UK. We don't generally, British citizens don't have to leave fingerprints with our passports. So it's not something we generally think about, really. Yeah, we don't either. I think it was one of the new security things they were doing. And so really curious. One of the other things we were talking about during the break was, and I talk about this a lot, we have a lot of challenges here in the States with the healthcare system. And that's always kind of a topic of conversation. And, and we were talking about your national system versus the private pay options and what that looks like. And the challenges with Brexit, I hadn't even considered the impact to medical care and the medical community with that yeah and, and I mean it we we are fiercely we are fiercely proud and protective of our um, national health service our NHS um, for many reasons it's free at the source so and it, it's it's our it's 
something that many of us have grown up with since since the late 1940s so um obviously not me I'm a lot younger than that but <laughs> part of our it's it's a it's an absolute pillar of our society is our NHS it's a, it's an interesting one because if you have an ailment then your first access to healthcare is through your your GP your general practitioner and you basically you're expected to sign up with a GP that is local to where you live and from that point onwards then you can if you have something that is of concern to the GP they can refer you to a specialist at the the local hospital although you can choose which hospital you would you would prefer to go to as well uh, within a certain they, they tend to give you a short list and you choose from the short list with this particular instance I was fortunate enough many employers are actually giving offering private health care as an employee benefit as a taxable benefit so when I was first diagnosed I was lucky enough to have access to private health care which I'd never experienced before in my life you know I think the first the first things that ever happened was going going to this fancy building you know where everyone has their own room and they've got their own restaurant and it's nice food and you know everyone's treating you you know very differently I found um because they 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 have they have staff uh the challenges we have with our NHS at the moment as I say we're all fiercely proud and protective of it however there are a number of challenges with that in the sense that it's quite target driven it's very localized the expectations are slight can can vary and i'm trying really hard to be diplomatic as well but in terms of access to healthcare right now we have a an aging population here in the uk and it can sometimes be a bit more difficult to get an appointment with your gp and in certainly since 2016 it has been increasingly more difficult because we have a shortage of doctors there are many theories around it, but Brexit is one theory that I have personally <laughs> as to, you know, where have, where have all the doctors gone? Well, some of them have left because of the political climate and because of uh, the very long hours that they are subjected to working, working within NHS hospitals, you know, and that is becoming more widely known in our society now more doctors are coming out and telling us their stories about what it's been like to work in that environment but certainly my experience was all of my treatment was done privately through this health insurance that I had I was incredibly incredibly grateful to have had access to that level of care there are many who don't but also from the perspective of the amount of time that elapsed between diagnosis and treatment was all of a week Whereas I do know that if I hadn't had access to that level of healthcare, yes, it would have been pushed through as an urgent case. The target amount of time between diagnosis and treatment is three weeks. And unfortunately, there are many areas of the the UK that are not hitting that target at the moment. And that could have meant the difference between stage three and stage four for me huge. We have the same challenges, I think, from a broader perspective. Government-run items in general tend to have a bit more bureaucracy and a bit more complexity, which then causes delays and unintentional circumstances. And sometimes the costs are greater. Mm -hmm. Then we have to be really fierce advocates. And I have found in my own journey and and with people that I know here local to me, not everyone who's facing these challenges has the presence of mind 
to fight that fight and be that advocate, then there are delays. And I know in my case, I was, okay, what's, uh, what's my next thing? What's my next thing? Why yeah. isn't it on the calendar yet? I've called you five times. Don't make yeah. me call you again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was the same. Um, last year, when, when I had my recurrence, um, last year, I was calling most days. And in the end, I got to the point, well, I got to the end of my tether because I knew that I was needing to have the surgery. I was re-diagnosed in May. It got to late June and I still didn't have a date. And the very sad thing was that it, it took, I was very fortunate in the sense that I was moving over to a company that had uh, medical history disregarded private medical care. So, and I'd found myself in an, you know, using the NHS last year, but not able to take advantage of the private healthcare until the 1st of July. However, I did find that because I was switching over, they were so accommodating. And because I had got, I, I'd got very concerned and worried, they were happy to let me self-pay for my consultations. Those appointments that were, they're in fact, I called, I nicknamed them design appointments because they were with the plastic surgeon or they were with various blood vessel scans and things that they needed to do I was able to pay for those myself and know that the the very very expensive huge operation was taking place after the insurance kicked in so that was really helpful my husband was commenting just last week we were having this conversation about the high percentage of GoFundMe campaigns that are specifically directed at covering healthcare costs and the message that that should be sending across the board for mm -hmm. the high cost of healthcare and, and the impacts that that has on us. Yeah, for us in the UK, it's time. It's the difference between waiting, between waiting a week and waiting five weeks or six weeks. I, it's, and it, I find it personally quite sad that it takes money to get things moving. The mental stress that that causes on us. I know I pushed my appointments along very quickly once I got into that sort of place where I knew what was going on and I pushed my appointments through. And there was six weeks between the time I had my appointment with my surgeon where we talked about the pathology results. It was six weeks to the time I had surgery. And it was two weeks between the time we had that conversation and the time I actually got a surgical date. Mm. On that call, two weeks out, I was like, you have to fix this. I yeah. can't, I need a date. And when yeah. I hung up the phone, that was one of the only times yeah. that I started to lose it. Because I was like, I, I have to have a date. It's been two weeks. Come on. Yeah, and I know that you might not be as far along as maybe some of their other patients are. You know, your case might not be as urgent, but it is still, it's important to you. It's your life. And especially because certainly, certainly when I finished my first treatment, I became very anxious and I knew there was, I, I felt like there was something hanging over my head the whole time. And it turned out to be true. It turned out that there was something there. So for me, it was, I just needed to know, and I, I struggle, I have trust issues anyway, like with getting things sorted. I, I don't often very easily trust other people to, to do their jobs correctly. <laughs> and I wish, I wish that I could get that sorted and out of my head. But I just thought sometimes it just takes a little extra drive. I, I have to know what's happening. I need to know where I stand and I need to know what is the next step. 
so for me and and certainly it sounds like for you too it's it's a matter of just getting off your backside and and taking matters into your own hands because really that's the only way that you're going to get any comfort and peace while you're dealing with that difficult diagnosis but also trying to prepare yourself for the mental challenge that is that treatment it's hard enough as it is it's even harder if you don't know what's going to happen absolutely so it is crazy how quick the time always goes on these interviews (laughs) we talked about how and i've said this a few times during this episode surviving is just the beginning we get through all the treatment there's this sort of extended recovery period we had talked about employer challenges and how we as survivors navigate that and in ways in which employers can have a better understanding that landscape. Absolutely. A little bit about that. I work in the technology industry and I work with a specific technology whereby the company that has pioneered that technology cares very deeply about equality, pushes that, that care and level of attention on equality into the wider ecosystem that they work with. So their customers, their partners and other technology companies as well. And it's something that I value very greatly. And when we think of equality, we tend to think of equality in terms of ethnic background and gender and sexual orientation. I think there is another element of that equality, which is around and, and it, we often get lumped into the disability section, if you like, because cancer is protected as a disability. Even remission from cancer is protected as a disability. But I would, I would urge if you're an employer or you're somebody's manager and you've got somebody who's dealing with any kind of critical illness, is to consider that in the context of equality, in the sense that, yes, the cancer might be gone for now or forever. But actually, the healing process has many facets. The physical healing for somebody who's had chemotherapy can take years. You've been poisoning your body. Often your bones feel more creaky. You feel a bit more breakable. And you can't hold things properly anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> But equally, there are tasks that might have been easier to complete before you've had your chemotherapy that you maybe can't complete as easily now you get tired more and yes we all get tired we're all in busy jobs and I think the worst thing that someone said to me was I was in a job where I had done three days of commuting in and out of London in a row and on day two I said to the project manager I think I need to work from home tomorrow I'm absolutely exhausted and she said well aren't we all and I and I I just kind of shrugged and and left it at that point because I thought well if I say anything more it's just going to turn into I'm going to look like a drama queen but actually I thought to myself that it was a shame that she'd said that because in those in that very short sentence she had actually undermined what I was trying to say to her she hadn't seen me while I was ill she had joined the company after I'd got back so she had didn't really appreciate what I was trying to say with that But also she basically said in that one sentence, she basically knocked me back down and dismissed it. And I thought that that was, um, you know, yes, that was demotivating, but I kind of made it my mission to educate her a little bit in saying, you know, okay, maybe I have to say that, you know, I'm I'm recovering from cancer. It is protected as a disability. In UK employment law, you have rights as a disabled person for reasonable adjustments. And those reasonable adjustments might be, I will do two days a week in London. I will not do three in a row. 
I could maybe do Monday and Tuesday in London at home Wednesday and then back in on Thursday and then at home Friday. Those would be reasonable adjustments. What I would say is um, to anybody who has um, a member of staff in their employ who has experienced cancer is not to expect that, yes, it's gone for now, but not to expect that they're going to be okay and that they're going to be the same person straight away afterwards because they're not. There's physical changes, there's mental changes. It can take years for people to get over cancer. And actually, in that respect as well, there is an element of post-traumatic stress that comes from it because suddenly everybody's disappeared. All these people who were your cushions, your doctors, your families, your physiotherapists, your mental health specialists who were all there with you before, suddenly you're not seeing them as much. And if you've had longer term treatments like chemotherapy, that becomes your life and your routine for about a year or two years. And for that routine, for you to just get used to that routine of going to hospital very regularly and then suddenly not needing to do it anymore, it feels like your life's changed again. So there is an element of post-traumatic stress that goes in there. And I think that we can, we can pay due respect to equality if we remember the need of those people who just need a hug every now and again to say, yeah, I understand. I understand. And it's fine for you to work from home today. As long as the work gets done, that's fine. But, and, and I accept that the cancer's gone now, but it hasn't left your life yet. It may have left your, your body, but it's not left your life. I think that's important as well. I was looking at something on the American Cancer Society's page, and it was something like 34% of people don't return to work after cancer treatment. It made me so curious as to why that is the case. In your case, I, I know you're very passionate about your job, and you've had a, a fair amount of support there. And in my case, I work for myself. And I really love what I do. And it made me very curious. We take stock. It causes us to take stock and say, mm -hmm. do I really love what I do? Like, yeah. do I love what I do enough to take the train into London three days a week or four days a week? Did I stay alive for this? <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's a really important thing for employers to consider as well. I've heard people when they were first diagnosed have clients or coworkers or situations where it's known they're going through this journey. It's known they had chemo yesterday, yet someone's asking them to be on a conference call or run a meeting or do something that they're like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, yeah, if they're not comfortable with it. It gives people pause. And they do start to take stock of where am I and what is important to me. I think it changes your values. It definitely changes your values. And people who've not been through cancer have said to me before, I can see that you've you got like a new lease of life and what you value has changed. And I could say, yes, it has changed in some ways because, you know, if, if I'm in a situation where I'm unhappy or it's affecting my mental health, then I will get out of it. And the rationale behind it is, you know, I didn't stay alive for this. I'm not going to waste the time that I have on this earth, which is very short, you know, all the cliches, but I'm not going to waste that time. I want, I want to make the best of it. And if making the best of it means I want to enrich my life and focus on what I'm passionate about. And the two main things I'm passionate about is my daughter and my career. And I'm trying to teach my daughter as well that, that there is a reason that, she, that I pack her off to school every morning and make her wear school uniform and push her out the door and make her read books every night. 
And that's because I want her to find out what she's passionate about. And I want to set an example to her. If I'm passionate about what I do, I like making changes in companies. I like making them more efficient. And I get a real kick out of seeing that efficiency saving being made and being delivered. I want Molly to to see the happiness and the motivation that I get from making those differences in my working life and actually help her to understand that she doesn't have to pick a dead end job. She could do, she can actually do something that she really genuinely enjoys doing, which is what you're doing by helping other people and working for yourself, right? Finding our passion and our purpose is so important to our overall well-being. a purpose as opposed to having a job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we all want that. I mean, everybody, whether they've been ill or not, wants that. I, I guess I, I value it a lot more closely. I hold it dearer to my heart now than I, more than I did six years. Is this six years? Six years. Six years ago. Way more. I, I do the same job, but I do it with a, a, a different level of gusto now. Yeah, that's amazing. I think for all the people that I talk with who have been on a cancer journey, the way that we value our life and our time and how we spend it has just changed. There is such a focus on purpose and enjoyment. If it doesn't make me happy, maybe I'm not going to do it. Like, unless I can find a way for it to make me happy, I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I hope that other people who have not been on this journey hear that and think, huh, Maybe I can make those changes and not have to have a health crisis to get me to that point. Yeah. And just on the, on that as well is, is it's equally important for people who care for family members and friends who are ill as well are kind of afforded the same respect because they're also on a journey. They're looking after their loved one, but equally they are seeing that unfold before their own eyes and they have needs too. They have they have needs from their own employers to go and care for their, their loved ones and their families and to make sure that they can still thrive and do what's important to them. Yeah. Absolutely. Oftentimes I think our caregivers, they see us so clearly for all the challenges that we're having and they love us and they care for us and they're definitely the unsung heroes in the story oftentimes. Yeah, we don't see them go home and cry because they've just seen their daughter with no hair for the first time in their lives and they never thought they ever would. Yeah. I always say cancer's rubbish, but it's even worse if your kid's got cancer. That's the only thing that I think would be worse. One of the things that my husband noticed, my aunt had scleroderma for 14 years. She passed last summer. And my uncle had been a caregiver progressively over the years, more and more of a caregiver. And the first time that we saw them after I had started treatment, everyone would always say to my husband, how how is Jen? When he saw Tommy, Tommy said, how are you? Yeah, how are you? And he said, I understand why people are asking about you because there is a fear like, and you're going through this thing. And He said, but wow, it meant so much to me that he saw me. And he said, but I could really tell caregiver to caregiver. Yeah. There was that 
seeing and he really appreciated that and mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely a hundred percent right that is not something that people are really present to it has been such a pleasure talking with you today yeah me too we can yes. carry on for hours absolutely the time goes so quickly well thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your insights there's Oh my gosh, so many components to this journey. We just have scratched the surface. Thank you, Gemma, for your time today. And I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you. And you too. Thank you for having me. I love providing a space for people to share their stories and perspectives about the issues we face on this journey. Thanks again, Gemma, for sharing your story and perspectives today. We covered so many great topics, from the grass is not always greener topic of national health care versus private care options, to compassion for caregivers, as well as patients. For this week's personal consciousness challenge, I want to talk about the importance of living on purpose. An integral part of overall well-being is our ability to find balance and purpose. For those of us on a cancer journey, we tend to be a bit more focused on living on purpose and less available to be swayed by the priorities of others, especially if those priorities do not align with our priorities and values. What step can you take today toward living more on purpose? Come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group and share your action step today. Tune in next week when I'll be talking with another young survivor about her melanoma journey. Our skin is our biggest organ, so check in next week to learn more about how to protect it. Have a great week, and thanks for listening.